Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Later this hour, IPR classical music host Barney Sherman will be here to tell us about his favorite new classical recordings from 2023 that feature Iowa artists. But first, we are going to uncover some of Iowa's best-kept secrets with travel writer and blogger Megan Bannister. Her most recent book is Secret Iowa, A Guide to the Weird, Wonderful, and Obscure. It is full of sight you might want to visit and stories you will definitely want to tell. Megan, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me. And although we've talked before about some of Iowa's stranger tourist attractions, you are not a native Iowan. How long have you been living in the state? I am not. So I'm I'm originally from neighboring Illinois, and I've been here for almost 15 years. So at this point, I'm adopted. But (laughs) but yeah, Yeah, we'll claim you for sure. When did you first become obsessed with weird roadside attractions? I've always kind of loved a weird, wacky thing. We grew up doing a lot of kind of driving and road trips and that type of thing for family vacations. So it was a lot of making your own fun. Uh, And so I've always kind of been the friend that's like, oh, I heard, you know, the world's largest loon is just a little bit away. And then we're horribly lost and very late for where we (laughs) planned on going. So it's always been an interest. And then, yeah, it was fun to be able to put them together. So coming to Iowa, moving to the state, travel writing, you know, traveling around, looking for these kinds of things. How do you find them? Yeah, it's a lot of, it's really a hodgepodge. So I have a journalism background. And so I was really used to doing kind of the the online research. I joke a lot that I get a lot of use out of my newspapers.com subscription, um, talking to a lot of people and then kind of other sites that do a lot of weird and wacky things. So Roadside America, Atlas Obscura, uh, Road Trippers, some of those great resources. But it really is just kind of keeping like a running notes app list in my phone of all of the things that people are like, hey, have you heard about, you know, this random thing on the side of the road and then kind of going on a research rabbit hole from there. Well, and this collection is really diverse because you do have weird, wacky, and you do have serious history as well. So in putting together this collection, what was your vision? Yeah, so this is actually a series that the publisher um, of the book does. And so there are other secret titles. So there's, you know, Secret Chicago, Secret Route 66, Secret Kansas. Um, And so I had some parameters of there could only be 84 places. And then that also there needed to be a physical place that people could still go visit to kind of experience the secret or the story. Okay, so it wasn't just weird stories. Although, you know, like the Van Meter visitor, that's mostly a really weird story. Yes. Yeah, and but so you I tried, found a place. Yeah, so I tried really hard to kind of spread them out into like, what are some things that are kind of quick roadside stops that are, are some of those weird and wacky things, um, you know, that you could maybe see for free? And then what are some of those things that are really the Iowa hidden gems that unless you're local or, you know, spent time in an area, you might never have heard of? So I think we should start with some of the more serious ones. And we'll, we'll build to <laughs> I love that. some of the sillier ones as well. But I have to ask you first, 84 places, was it hard to whittle it down? 
It was. Yeah, I'm a I'm a spreadsheet gal. And so I kind of started with just a brain dump and went from there. And there was a couple toward the end, too, that I was even like getting ready to turn it in and was like switching things in and out of like, is this one a good enough secret? Is this one a good enough secret? And yeah, it was really difficult to narrow down. And every time I do an event or I'm out talking about the book, I get like another suggestion or two from people. So my I'm list sure. is growing. Well, I, I went into this a little bit with some arrogance, I will say, because, you know, Secret Iowa is also one of my things. This yeah, is what I, I do for a job. But you did surprise me oh, and a few of them. <laughs> not all of them. But the, my favorite part about it was not just that um, there were some that surprised me, but there were backstories that I didn't know already. Yeah. And that yeah. that really adds some depth and fun, even to something... Uh, I'll give you an example. I promised we'd start serious, but we're not going to now. Um, the giant wooden nickel in yeah. in Johnson County. So, you know, I've driven by that so many times. I know that it says that it's the world's largest wooden nickel, but I never knew the backstory to that. So for people who don't drive in Johnson County, first des- describe what it is. Yeah. So it, it is, um, as, as named, the world's largest wooden nickel. And it's a, like, giant kind of slat board. I think it's yellow pine, but it's, like, 16 feet in diameter, so pretty big. Um, And it has – it's a buffalo nickel. And so it says, wooden nickel, Johnson County, Iowa – um, and then it has at the center, don't tread on me, vote for common sense, which I think is the funny backstory part of that it actually was a giant piece of protest art. Right. I just assumed that somebody wanted to make a giant nickel. Yes. Yeah. No, it, it was it has a whole backstory about kind of the the widening of the road and the redevelopment of that kind of area uh, as you're headed into more rural Johnson County away from kind of downtown Iowa City. So yeah, I thought that was just so funny. And that was, I mean, that's the, the I think, fun part about a lot of these as they might be places that you drive by all the time, but have never, a lot of them don't have signs. There's not like extensive info about them. And so to kind of learn something new. Right. Well, and some of these have history that goes way back. This wooden nickel was installed in 2006. I moved to the Iowa City area in 2010. So for me, it's always been part of the landscape. I had no idea what the backstory was. Probably people who were here in 2006 (laughs) did know. But, uh, you know, and then some of these go much farther back in time. So I I promised we'd start serious, and I think we should now. Now we'll get serious. But um, some some of the sites that that you encourage people to visit, I think, are places that are often overlooked but are really important parts of Iowa history. And one of those is the Wallace Center. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So the Wallace Center, um, if you're in the Des Moines area, you might be familiar uh, with the Wallace Center as um, kind of the Sherman Hill uh, home, but they actually have a farmstead um, out in Orient, Iowa, which is where uh, the Wallace family originally kind of settled. Um, and Henry Wallace was named, uh, that was kind of the secret, is who was the most influential Iowan of the 20th century. Um, and it was Henry Wallace who is responsible for a lot of the farming innovation that we kind of, I think, take for granted today. And again, you know, one of those stories that that maybe gets somewhat lost over time as his influence, you know, becomes invisible in our daily lives. Um, Another one of the sites that I think is just wonderful, and it's been on my bucket list forever, and I've never gone, is to go to the Clock Museum in Spillville. Tell us about that. 
Yes, so the the Bailey Clock Museum in Spillville. Um, So up toward kind of the Decorah area, um, if you are traveling that way. So there was a pair of brothers that uh, were farmers. They uh, kind of worked in the area in the late 1800s between kind of the Ridgeway and Spillville areas. And during the winter, I think like many people did, when they weren't farming, they needed a hobby. And so they started crafting Um, things out of wood. And they were really, really naturally talented woodworkers um, and ended up designing these hand-carved clocks that are like 10 and 12 feet tall. They have all of these moving mechanisms and they play music. um, And they're just super impressive. But they didn't have a high school education. They never left the county um, and had all of these people come from all over the world to see these really impressive clocks. Um, They also never sold one. And so Henry Ford tried to buy one of them for like more than a million dollars and they wouldn't sell it. And so in the end, they decided they were going to sell it to the city of Spillville for a dollar, provided that people could still go and enjoy the clocks and visit them. And they have been there, yeah, since like the 1940s. Another site that has, we've talked about it a few times on Talk of Iowa in recent years, but again, it it really is kind of a recent addition and our understanding of it has grown recently. And and that's the Hitchcock House in Lewis, which uh, was part of the Underground Railroad. And that history of what happened there has, has really been opened up in the last few years. Tell us about the Hitchcock House. Absolutely. Yeah, that's one of um, one of my favorite hidden gems for sure. And so it was a home that was built in the 1850s um, in southwest Iowa. And it was actually constructed um, with a basement that had kind of hinged cupboards so that it could be accessible um, from the kitchen, but also from an exterior entrance so that they had a secret room to help um, people that were passing through the area to uh kind of hide enslaved people, um, but also with that kind of mission predominantly in mind, which I think um, some people are surprised to learn. But the Hitchcocks were actually um, really influential in town, and a lot of people in the Lewis area were actually involved in um, kind of helping freedom seekers move from Missouri and into Iowa during that time. There, there are so many great stories that are involved in some of these sites. I mean, another one is the Kate Shelley... You put the Kate Shelley Highbridge on the map, which, of course, the Kate Shelley Highbridge is not a bridge that played a part in the story of Kate Shelley, although you can you can go to the original site where she allegedly crawled across a bridge across the Des Moines River in Moingona. But tell me a little bit about I, I always have to say that because I do think kids grow up thinking that she crawled across that really, yes. really high bridge. And that she was such bridge. a brave person. <laughs> yes, But it yes. wasn't that bridge. But tell us a little bit about Kate Shelley. Correct. So it was not. So um, Kate Shelley in the 1880s, uh, her family lived kind of right off of the river um, near the what at the time was the Honey Creek Bridge. And it was a railroad bridge. Um, and so they were kind of used to, I think, as anyone who lives kind of near railroad tracks, of used to the kind of comings and goings of the trains. And one night, 
night around 11 p.m., um, heard a really loud noise and learned that an engine had fallen off the bridge and derailed. And they knew that there would be another train coming shortly after that. And so in this thunderstorm, their daughter at the time, who was 17, um, kind of took a lantern out, went toward Honey Creek, found that there were two survivors from this wreck. um, And they urged her to try to get to the depot on the other side of the river to warn that uh, the other train that would be coming. And so she, yeah, in this thunderstorm, crawled across the Thai Railroad Bridge, which, yes, is not the one that is pictured. Um, but, but still, still had to harrowing. be right. Yeah. Had to be really, really scary. And yes. I mean, visiting the High Bridge—that was one of my favorite spots to go as a kid because I grew up in that part of Central Iowa for a while. And it's a—it's a very, very cool bridge to see and maybe even travel across on occasion. We're going to take a short break. Megan will be back in just a moment. I'm talking to Megan Bannister. She is the author of *Secret Iowa: A Guide to the Weird, Wonderful, and Obscure*. She also blogs at olioiniowa.com. We'll be back in a moment. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion including Above and Beyond Cancer. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nubby. Coming up in just about 15 minutes, Iowa Public Radio classical music host Barney Sherman will be here to share his favorite new classical music recordings by Iowa artists from 2023. Right now, we are talking about some obscure but fascinating tourist attractions in the state of Iowa. With me is travel writer and blogger Megan Bannister. Her most recent book is Secret Iowa, A Guide to the Weird, Wonderful, and Obscure. And Megan, one of the things that I really enjoy about this book is not only that it gives me the backstory on some things, but it it kind of pulls together a collection of really unusual visions that individuals have had over the years. You know, we, we talked about the clocks and, and you know, the, the Beelies made these amazing clocks but didn't want to sell them. You also share the stories of, of some people who thought, you know, why, why wouldn't I build a castle? Why wouldn't I build a pyramid? Why wouldn't I build a grotto in my hometown? So let's talk about some of these really amazing sites that you can see in Iowa. And I want to start with Ida Grove because my family used to drive through Ida Grove all the time when I was a kid. And I just loved seeing the castles in Ida Grove. Yeah. So if anybody is not familiar, um, Ida Grove uh, is a town uh, up in northwest Iowa that really, yeah, has embraced kind of the vision of one man who just thought, you know, I have to build uh, an office for my business. He owned a marine and farm equipment business and they needed an office. And he decided, you know, instead of boring, uh, he was going to go with classic medieval architecture. And so he designed his office to 
look like a 12th century castle. Um, and people, I think, pretty quickly thought that that was really interesting and would start to come out to see it. And so pretty quickly, the town of Ida Grove kind of embraced that. And so now they have um, a city entrance castle that kind of says Ida Grove at the entrance to town. There are, uh, you know, shopping plazas. The old newspaper building is one of my favorite ones. Um, That's a like kind of castle wall and turret. Um, Their local skating rink is the Skate Palace, and that's all kind of castle themed. Um, So yeah, the commitment to the theme is really, really fantastic. And it's all on a small scale or smaller, smaller scale. So it's, it's so, I mean, it's, it's fantastic to see, but maybe not quite as imposing as, I don't know, castles in Europe. Sure. Yes. (laughs) So I grew up knowing about the castles in Ida Grove, but before your book, I had never heard of the Great Pyramids of Avery. Tell me about them. Yeah, so this was one that I got um, from a friend who grew up in the area, and it was one of those of like, yeah, there's always been this thing, but I have no idea why it's there. Uh, And so this was a really fun research rabbit hole. So down in southeast Iowa, um, in kind of an unincorporated area that's technically Avery, um, there is a kind of a rural cemetery that in the 1930s, uh, a local man who had been the newspaper publisher uh, decided that he was going to purchase a kind of the adjacent parcel. And he had gotten into Egyptology in his later life and decided that he really wanted to build himself a scale replica of the pyramids of Giza um, and not just uh, build them, but be entombed in the largest one. Uh, And his vision was that he and his friend who he printed the newspaper with would be seated upright with their printing press in between them uh, to be to be buried when the time came. Now, that did not happen. Um, He is buried kind of uh, in a a neighboring community, uh, but they are still there and they the kind of tunnel to get into them is open um, and it's been almost 100 years. But, yeah, I just thought that was like such a, a funny vision and like something that yeah locals are like why is this there and it's kind of been lost to to time a little bit is it hard to find um it's so the cemetery is the best way to navigate there once you get to the cemetery they're pretty easy to spot (laughs) they're Um, big enough (laughs) yes they're big enough they are definitely scaled down um but they're kind of in a back corner it is there's a few instances um this one's not so bad um places like the buxton historic town site are places that if you're like me and you drive a honda fit uh you maybe don't want to be out on like a level b road after it's rained right try to get to not for a couple weeks after yes. it's rained, probably. Yeah. Well, so, you know, castles in Ida Grove, Great Pyramids of Avery, I think that those are are items that it's possible to live in Iowa and not know about. I think you have to have your Iowa card taken away from you if you don't know about the Grotto of the Redemption in West Bend. But it definitely fits on this list of a man with a vision who made something crazy happen. Yeah, that was actually one of the very first places when I started driving around the state um, that I had heard about and really wanted to go to. So it is the world's largest man-made grotto. Um, And it was a a man 
who was one of the local priests in the early 1900s, um, had this vision to build a grotto after he had been sick and recovered. Um, he was going to build this shrine, and he spent mostly his entire lifetime working on it and building it, and actually the lifetimes of two other men who uh, served in the area as well. But it is truly something to behold. I mean, you could you could be there for hours and hours just kind of walking around looking at all of the different stones and designs and things like that that are inlaid there. It's, yeah, really impressive. And you also, you kind of broke down how much it would have cost yeah. to put this all together. And that's something that I, I had never really thought about. I don't know why I've never thought about that. But yeah, I mean, these so are semi-precious stones, some of them. For sure. Oh, yeah. It's, I mean, you know, opals and kind of all sorts of topaz and petrified wood. And so there's an estimate out there that I found quite a few places um, that it's an estimated $4.3 million in stones and precious gems. And they're not quite sure when he began kind of collecting them or acquiring them. But yeah, it was it was quite the process. So these are kind of older examples of, you know, one person with a vision and making something really wonderful happen. And, and People are still doing that in Iowa. I think Matchstick Marvels is is a great example of that because here again, this is one person with a dream and with a vision and and he's made the most incredible things. Yeah, oh absolutely. So um in in Gladbrook you can visit Matchstick Marvels and it is um an Iowan, his name is Patrick Acton, and he started in the nineteen seventies building models out of matchsticks. Um and he kind of started really small, um, but then kind of has really scaled up since then and makes, you know, the U.S. Capitol, um, the Hogwarts Castle from Harry Potter. He has a two-headed dragon that kind of moves and lights up. Um, and they are, they're one of those things that if you didn't know that they were matchsticks looking at them um, is just so, so impressive. And one of my favorite things I have learned about that is that initially he didn't realize that you could buy matchsticks without the match tips, like the sulfur ends. And so he was actually clipping them off to construct all of these. So not only was he having to build them, but he was having to kind of do that manual piece as well. Incredible, incredible. People people with vision and patience that Absolutely. goes far beyond uh, anything that I could ever achieve. We've talked a lot about men with vision. Uh, I want to talk about a woman with vision who built over a lifetime an incredible collection of salt and pepper shakers. Yes. Yeah. This one is one of my absolute favorites and a place that had been on my Iowa bucket list for a really, really long time. And I finally made it when I was working on this book uh, and was like, well, I will be back every year. Uh, so it is the Salt and Pepper Shaker Gallery in Trayer. And one woman, her name is Ruth Rasmussen. Uh, she has a lifelong Trayer resident and just kind of, I think, as we all do, started collecting salt and pepper shakers when she was on a trip. And over the years, her collection grew. People would bring them back for her from trips. Um, and initially, she just kind of put like a garden shed in their front yard in Trayer. And she had a sign and people would kind of come in and look around at them. And over the years, she really ran out of room. Um, and so as she was getting older, the city of Trayer realized that this was something really special to help preserve. And so they purchased her collection from her in 2008. And it is more than 15,000 pairs 
of salt and pepper shakers wow. that you can go see that are all her collection. Um, they have them broken down into different uh, kind of like a fruit market or all of the ones that are cats or all of the ones that are, you know, from different states. They have like a U.S. map. It is it's really, really impressive. All right, you said you now you need to go every year. Why? Why, Megan? I mean, I, I, I can imagine that it's I wonderful like to see could, once. <laughs> I feel like you could see something different every. Like there are just so many to look at. I also am like a collector of funny things like that, and so my partner was like, "Oh no, this this is the future," and I was like, "Yeah, this is the goal. <laughs> this like, is to... what I've been working for all this time." Exactly. <laughs> do you do you already know what your thing is? What um, what we'll be talking about in fifty years? Yeah, lately it's been uh, ceramic fruit and vegetable containers, okay. so like a giant potato with a little potato for the the lid and that type of thing. Nice. Well, I, I can't wait to see that museum. <laughs> um, <laughs> You also have a love for world's largest things. Although I will say that these world's largest monikers sometimes are a little bit suspect. Like um, I think that the town square in Centerville is just incredible. It's so beautiful. It's called the world's largest town square. Is there anything to back that up? Uh, no. no. So okay. that's, that one is like a marketing thing. Yes, for sure. <laughs> All right. But let's talk about... Let's talk about some large things and and a story that I think we have to share. I learned about this in fifth grade Iowa history, and I can't even imagine why we learned about it in Iowa history, except that it's such a weird story. And it occurs to me that every Iowan should know this story, and it's probably not taught anywhere anymore. Please tell us about the Cardiff Giant. Yes. So the Cardiff Giant, um, if you are from the Fort Dodge area or grew up in that area, and maybe that's why, um, you might have known about the Cardiff Giant. And so in the late 1860s, there was a man named George Hall who came to visit family in the Fort Dodge area. And he uh, was entrepreneurially minded. And had seen kind of these big revivalist rallies and how they were drawing people in um, with stories of, you know, giants walking the earth and some of those things. And so he got the idea after seeing Fort Dodge Gypsum, which is kind of like a sandy stone with kind of blue veining, uh, that he was going to purchase a big block of that stone and have someone carve a mummified giant that he could then pay people to discover and pretend like they had discovered a mummified giant. And so he purchased the stone in Iowa. He transported it to Chicago to be carved into the giant and then transported it all the way to upstate New York, which is why it's called Cardiff, um, and had some men who were digging a well discover it. And in the end, it ended up being like more than 10 feet long. It was almost 3,000 pounds. So if you can imagine in like the mid-1800s, the transporting of this. Um, but it was, I mean, he was correct. It was wildly successful. Uh, thousands of people paid 50 cents to come see it. Um, it was so successful that P.T. Barnum even tried to buy it from him. And then when he refused, P.T. Barnum made his own Cardiff giant. And so there were two fake mummified giants. Uh, and so there are now actually three because in Fort Dodge, the uh, historical museum at the fort there has made a third one to kind of uh, pay tribute to this story that you can go see when you visit the museum. And having seen photos, I it's so hard to imagine anybody was taken in by this. 
but <laughs> yeah oh yeah but no but people were people believed him i also love the fact that it, is it a fig leaf or a palm leaf that's, yes. that's protecting the uh the modesty of the cardiff yes giant? uh i have heard from friends who grew up in the area it did not always used to be there uh but they do a lot of school tours and uh to minimize some of the giggling they have yeah <laughs> added that as well all right so a fully modest cardiff giant yes. on display what are some of your other um favorite world's biggest things in Iowa? So I really, really love the world's largest ball of popcorn um, in Sac City, just because that one is such a funny story and also like a little bit gross. Um, So the current world's largest popcorn ball is more than 9,000 pounds, and it's about 10 or 12 feet in diameter. Um, And they made it in like 2016. But it was not the first popcorn ball that Sac City had created. It's actually the fourth because their record kept getting beat. And one of my favorite stories is initially when they created this popcorn ball in the mid 90s, um, they after the record was beat, and they knew they were going to make a second one, they needed to find a way to dispose of it. And so they thought like, oh, so fun, we'll take it to the county fair, and we'll load it up with dynamite. And we'll explode it at the grandstand. And I think they thought that popcorn would like rain from the sky. (laughs) But in reality, it was so congealed that it just flew into the air and broke into like a couple of pieces when it landed back down. (laughs) And so, yeah, it's, it's it's a culinary marvel, but also like just so funny and kind of gross yeah. that you can just go see it in its little shed. And speaking of culinary marvels, where we only have three minutes left, so we absolutely must talk about the world's largest Cheeto. I had no idea that the world's largest Cheeto was in Iowa. Yes, in Algona. And so that one um, was not discovered in Iowa. It was actually discovered in Hawaii, uh, but was kind of in the area. And it's it's 20 years old this year. So it is a, an, an, a vintage artifact at this point. Um, but the man who found it listed it on eBay. And uh, someone who was a radio DJ in Algona thought it would be a funny thing to bring to town. And it was kind of the era of eBay having like you know, Jesus's face on a piece of bread listed. Um, And so they eventually kind of suspended the listing. But the guy who found it thought it was so funny that Algona was excited about it. And so he sent it to them. And yeah, it's on display um, at a restaurant that has inherited it from the restaurant that preceded them. But it's very, it's on a purple velvet pillow under kind of a glass case. So it also looks like it's crumbling. Yes. Yeah, it is definitely a 20 year old Cheeto. It has seen better days. (laughs) I think any world's largest food is going to have a gross factor to some degree. So we've just scratched the surface of all of these wonderful places that you can visit in Iowa. Megan, I have to ask you, you know, these stories are great. The pictures are great. Reading the book was so much fun. Why actually get in your car and go? What do you think you get out of that experience? Yeah, I think one of the best parts about some of these places is kind of the other things you might discover along the way. And so there was a ton of stuff I had to cut out. But like a lot of these small communities have, you know, really amazing restaurants that are attached to, you know, some of these places or some of the other things that you might happen upon. Um, And I also think just getting out and getting a new appreciation for the place that you live or the things that you drive by every day uh, can, yeah, really be inspiring and kind of fun. Do you think you know everything about roadside Iowa by now? 
Um, you know, you would think so. And then every time I do one of these, I feel like I get like new recommendations from people or things that I have not heard of before. So I'm always taking always taking new ideas. All right. Well, Megan, thank you so much for talking with me. And this book is so much fun. Thanks for having me. Megan Bannister is a travel writer and a blogger. Her most recent book is Secret Iowa, a guide to the weird, wonderful, and obscure. She also blogs at olioiniowa.com. That's O-L-I-O in Iowa. Coming up in just a moment, we are going to find out about some of the best new classical music recordings from 2023 featuring Iowa artists. IPR classical music host Barney Sherman will be here. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, Fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. As the year draws to a close, we have asked some of our IPR music experts to share with us some of the best new music of 2023. So we've already talked about the newest alternative and independent bands. We've talked about the blues, but now it's time to turn our attention to the world of classical music with IPR classical host Barney Sherman. You can hear him on the air on IPR Classical weekday and Sunday afternoons. Hello, Barney. Hi, Charity. It is wonderful to have you back. And there are so many new releases in classical music every year that span so many different subgenres. Barney, I know you and I have talked about how hard it is to make this list every year. But once again, you've really focused on Iowa artists, right? Exactly. I mean, that is our job. And the musicians keep doing their job. So that's what I, I kind of feel like that's what... I want to do with the year of endless, and as it happens, we have more than enough to fill the time we have here, Charity. Absolutely. Well, it's wonderful to amplify the work of Iowa artists, world-class Iowa artists at that. So why don't you tell us about your first pick? Well, I thought I'd start with choral music. It's one of Iowa's musical strengths, and this year's representative is the Grinnell Singers, conducted by the amazing John Romerheim. They made a recording of a major work by Jan Ismas Zelenka. He was born in a small Czech village in 1679, but he spent most of his career in Dresden. He was the official church composer. There, he and J.S. Bach seem to have been friends, become mutual friends and mutual fans when Bach visited there. So if you love the counterpoint and inventive imagination of Bach, this is for you. But it's also really hard for a choir to sing in the way that Bach is hard. Well, I, one of the things I love about choral music is that it often involves students. So it's got to be thrilling for these singers to hear themselves on this recording from, from Grinnell. They sing this music so well. Uh, here's the Osana from this Mass by Zelenka. Thank you. 
just a selection from the new recording of Jan Dismas Selenka's Misa Omnium Sanctorum by the Grinnell Singers. That was stirring, Barney. Really, really lovely. What's next on your list? Well, our next stop is a composer from Dubuque, Michael Gilbertson, graduate of the Northeast Iowa School of Music. He's done fundraisers for them regularly, often brought them to our studios at IPR. He's won some major international attention. Well, last year I put Michael's choral music on my list. This year we have the first recording of his string quartet. Now, this happens to be the work that put him on the map internationally. And it got special mention from the Pulitzer Prize Committee in 2017. Now, that was the year they gave the Pulitzer for the first time to a hip-hop artist, Kendrick Lamar. But they mentioned Michael as runner-up. And they, they said this quartet is unconstrained by convention or vogues and possesses a rare capacity to stir the heart. And it's true. Michael told me that he wrote it with the thought of giving comfort during distressing times. And it does comfort, but in a new and original way. So it's great to have a really good recording available. Michael Gilbertson's Pulitzer-nominated String Quartet. We were just listening to a little bit of the first movement called Mother Chords, and that's on the album Shatter by the Verona Quartet. What's next on your list, Barney? Well, Iowa has so many great flute players that I had to flip a coin. I could have gone with the album Intersections by truly great flute player Nicole Esposito of the University of Iowa, but the coin came up on the other side, so I'll go with Virginia Prophet Kunzer, who came originally from Iowa City, and the pianist Tammy Walker. Tammy is the chair of the University of Iowa Music Department, and it's the first recording I've heard of her, and it's a terrific CD. It's called Narrative, Music for Flute and Piano by Women Composers. It has a nice range of eras and styles and nationalities from African-American to Israeli to French and more. Well, the sample we have here is by Sofia Gubaidulina, who just turned 93 years old. She's, she was born in what is now Tatarstan and has lived in Germany since Glasnost. The piece is called Sounds of the Forest.
That is Sounds of the Forest from the album by pianist Tammy Walker and Virginia Brofitt Kunzer. And the album is Narrative, Music for Flute and Piano by Women Composers. It is so wonderful, Barney, to to have the work of women in classical music being noticed and amplified in some new ways in the last few years. What is next on your list? A singer. We have a lot of great singers in this state. Well, a mezzo-soprano named Michelle Monroe. She is a graduate of the University of Northern Iowa. She teaches voice at UNI, and she's also at the same time earning her doctorate at the University of Iowa. And she has the kind of voice that just goes right to your heart. And she is also a truly a masterful artist. Well, this year I brought the her premiere recording of four songs composed for her by Jeremy Beck. Now, he's a really fine composer who once taught at UNI. It's a new album of his music called Remember, and these four songs are on that. And I'm going to go with the first song, Acteon. It's on a text by Floyd Dell, who briefly attended Davenport High over a century ago. Just an excerpt of Acteon that's from four songs by Jeremy Beck, composed for and sung by mezzo-soprano Michelle Monroe on Beck's new album, Remember. And Barney, that brings us to your next choice. The album's called Murmurations. It's by Marcia Haji Marcos, who has two degrees from the University of Iowa. She's become renowned for playing early keyboard instruments. She's given clavichord recitals in Iowa City recently. But on this album, she's created a unique program of music for modern piano, ranges from Eric Satie to Arvo Part and Meredith Monk. But it's not just a collection. It's kind of a single experience from beginning to end. I'll take a short sample to uh, share here. It's a prelude by Howard Skempton.
that was a selection from a prelude by Howard Skempkin, performed by Marcia Haji Marcus from the album Murmurations. And Barney, I know you said there's a wide variety of music on that. The the title of the album made me think about flocks of birds doing their murmurations, moving through the sky. That worked perfectly with that music, whether or not it was supposed to. That was beautiful. That really, that title, she came up with that title. That's how she feels about the feeling of the album. So you guys are nice. right in tune. <laughs> All right. What's next on your list? Bruce Brubaker, a pianist who comes from Des Moines, he returns regularly. And it was this year in his visit to Des Moines that I heard about his latest project. He's the uh, co-chair of piano at New England Conservatory, but he's especially well-known for collaborations with composers, Really famous ones that we've all heard of. So this year he took the music of Brian Enos, which is electronic studio music, and Bruce turned it into piano music. It's kind of interesting reversal. Instead of playing Bach on a synthesizer, here Bruce is taking ambient music and making it into piano music. And it's, uh, it's actually kind of hypnotic. So here is a piece called The River. A little bit of The River by Brian Eno, performed by Bruce Brubaker on the piano from the album Eno Piano. And Barney, I think we have time for one more selection. Iowa is a world leader in the field of the classical saxophone, so I wanted a selection reflecting that. And I chose the album Flow by the Third Stream Quartet, which includes an Iowa saxophone great named James Romaine, who is the chair of the Department of Music at Drake University in Des Moines. It's kind of jazz classical crossover. Uh, this track is Attunement from Concinity for Sax Quartet by a man whom we will call, he goes by Kim Pencil. known far and wide for coin, corn, soybeans, and classical saxophone. 
is what you're telling me, Barney. <laughs> I think that's wonderful. That's, uh, nice alliteration there, Charity. <laughs> I try, I try. <laughs> the uh, the track was Attunement from Consinity for Sax Quartet by Kim Pencil. Barney, thank you so much for sharing your list with us again this year. Thanks for having me, and I'll look forward to doing this next year. IPR Classical Music host Barney Sherman. You can hear him on the air on IPR Classical weekday and Sunday afternoons. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. <laughs>